Uh, welcome to week number three of our sermon series called Best Gifts Ever. Uh, before we jump into today's message, uh, just one quick correction update. I actually said something last week in a sermon that wasn't entirely true, and two really good Bible-knowing Christians called me on it, so I need to correct it. Um, I was talking about the glory of Jesus and the humility of Jesus. Um, I was thinking about that night where Jesus washed his disciples' feet and no one washed his. And I said in the sermon, I think the quote was, and no one ever washed Jesus' feet. And two people said, well, well, that's not true. (laughs) There's stories in the Bible of a woman who anoints Jesus' feet, uh, dries his feet with her hair. So I hope that didn't throw you off. Sorry for the inaccuracy. Um, Pastor Michael's going to teach us next week that Jesus was full of truth. So pastors should be too. So sorry for falling short of that. All right. Uh, We're in week three of a sermon series called Best Gifts Ever. We're going to talk about God's grace today. Can you remember in your life the best church service that you've ever been to? Was it just a normal Sunday? There was something about it, something about the message, something about the music, something about something that happened in your heart that just made it better, if not the best Sunday you've ever experienced? Now, if it's your first Sunday ever in church today, congratulations, right? Best church service ever. This is happening right in front of your eyes. But if you've been around church a while, just like I have, you may have to think about that question. What, what makes church not just good, but better than most Sundays, if not the best you've ever experienced? And for some people, as they, they think about that question, you know, it might be the, the music of a service, where just one song spoke to your heart, and the next song got to your heart, and the song after that, you know, you, you just left moved in a way that you had never been moved before. For other people, something about the topic or the message that just hit home, it was so relevant, it was like exactly what you, as if God orchestrated the whole Sunday just so you could have that boost of encouragement that you need. Uh, For other people, it it might be the candlelight, singing Silent Night, the nostalgia of a Christmas Eve service like you grew up with as a kid. I know some people love kind of the grittiness and the honesty and the, the rawness of a Good Friday service where we don't sugarcoat it, we just talk about sin and guilt and shame and the amazing love that brought Jesus to a cross. For some people, it's the service where the the light first went on about who Jesus really was and what Jesus was really all about. And for other people, it's the Sunday, maybe it was your thousandth Sunday, but it was someone's first Sunday sitting next to you. You're dating that guy and he finally came to church. You're thinking about your sister for years praying for her and she finally showed up. It might be the person you're sitting next to. It might be a song. It might be the topic. I'm not sure what makes something really good when you come to church. But I was thinking over this question personally. Um, I grew up in the church. I honestly can't remember missing two Sundays in a row my entire life. Uh, My mom raised me and then I became a pastor, which means I have to come to church every Sunday a bunch of times or I get in trouble. All right, so I, I try to do the math. Um, I've been to church, I think, over 3,000 times, probably close to four or 5,000 times. And, and this dawned on me, it's going to feel kind of weird to say, but I want you to write this down because I, I think it's true. And it's a big thing I want to talk about today. In my experience, after thousands of church services, here's what I've learned. The church is at its best when I'm at my worst. I think what the Christian church, what Christianity and what Jesus Christ has to offer is really the best when you are not at your best. Now, I'm not sure if you can relate to this, but when everything is going great in my life, 
when it's that portion of the service where you're supposed to like confess your sins and think about God, and it's kind of hard to think of something you're really messed up. Um, when my body is healthy, when my family is happy, um, when I come to church on a Sunday like that, to be honest, it's really easy to step into a space like this with a casual heart. You know, grab a coffee. Coffee's delicious. I'm talking with you. You're good, fun people to hang out with. You know, I, I sit down. I probably don't even pray before the service begins. I sit down. I listen to the amazing music. And I'm a bit casual about it. Um, it's really easy to be kind of a consumer of a church service. You know, what do you got for me today, pastor? I sometimes think that when I'm not the pastor standing up here. Um, it's easy even to be critical of a church service. Did I like it? Did I not? Did I find the preacher long-winded or, or boring? Like, when life is good, it's easy to be casual even critical. On those Sundays, I can even come to the Lord's Supper, this amazing sacrament that Jesus gave, and, and I can, <laughs> confession time, sometimes I just think about how chewy the bread is or how the wine tastes instead of like the actual meaning of the thing that Jesus gave us, the words and, and what they're intended to convey. But I'll tell you what, when my life is not good, when I can think instantly of something I messed up in the last 24 hours, when things are falling apart, when my marriage is strained, when I'm living with pain, when I'm far from my best, in fact, when I'm closer, if not at my worst, that's when I think church is at its very best. I can't step into a place like this as a consumer or a critic. No, when, when my heart is just hungry, aching for hope, for healing, for forgiveness, for restoration. When I walk just feeling the weight of my own decisions, my shame and my guilt, and I step into this, then the singers could be off pitch as long as they give me just a, a crumb of what my soul most needs. And the preacher could stutter as long as he tells me, this is for you. It's for the forgiveness of your sins. I've kind of learned that after thousands of services that the Christian church really shines. It is at its best when people like us are far from our best and are at our worst. Now, I say that and I hope you can't relate to it. I hope you're happy. I hope you're healthy. I hope you didn't do anything yesterday that you really regret. But I wanted to share that with you because there's something that happens often in life when we are not at our best, when we've really messed up, when we feel like, oh, why did I do that? How could I say that? Why did, why did I give in to that? We tend to run from church instead of run to church. Ever happened to you? When life's a mess, when you can barely hold the tears back, when sometimes people avoid church, when we're not all put together, when the family and the marriage isn't as happy and perfect as it used to be, when you're terrified that someone's going to ask you, oh, how's your husband? Because he's not sitting next to you anymore. When you're in the middle of divorce court, when you were sober for a year and two months until yesterday. You ever sat in a church parking lot with the ignition running? Just thinking whether you're going to turn it off? and come inside or, or go back home? Ever been just frustrated and mad at God, wanted to run away from all this because you just didn't, you didn't get it, what was happening to you? Now, when the, when the wheels are falling off the bus, it is so tempting to run from God, from the Bible, from pastors, and from places like this. 
And that's why today, I just want to say something so clearly, I want to spend the rest of my time trying to prove it, that that Jesus Christ and the Christian church in a place like this, we are at our best when your life is at its worst. My goal is that if this happens to you, the next time it happens to you, when you can really relate to this, instead of staying in your car or staying at home, instead of avoiding pastors and Christian people, you run to us because we will offer you the one thing that your soul most needs. We can't promise to be the coolest place in town. Uh, Maybe you can find better food and drink and people in other spots. But we can consistently and guarantee to offer you is the one thing that your soul most needs. And I say that because today we're talking about grace. The amazing grace of God. It's shocking, it's surprising, it is illogical, and it is supernatural. And and today I want to help you understand it so that you know that a religion, a Christianity that is built on the grace of Jesus is the one thing you need when life is not what you want. Look at this amazing passage from John chapter 1. We're learning about Jesus where John writes the word, that's a nickname for Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's Christmas. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. Would you say the next three words with me? Full of grace and truth. Now Jesus was full of truth. We're going to talk about that on another day. He was full of high standards, pursuing holiness, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But, but today, would you forgive the imbalance? I just want to focus on those three words that when Jesus came, he was full of grace. I want to help you unwrap that gift and enjoy it today. So, um, let's start with a definition. What exactly is biblical grace? Sometimes in Christianity, we talk about saying grace, like, saying a prayer before we eat. Sometimes we name our our baby girls grace. But what what does the word grace actually mean? What's so amazing about it? I looked this up in a dictionary. Um, the, The base root definition of grace is a good disposition towards another person. Like if I'm kindly disposed towards you, if I don't scowl at you, if I don't turn my face away from you, If I look at you and smile at you, if I'm nice to you, if I give to you, that's the root definition of grace. It means to give because something moves you inside. But the Bible takes that concept to a whole nother level. Because biblical grace is not just being nice and it's not just giving a gift. It's not just being loving towards another person. I'd love for you to write this down. Biblical grace is undeserved love. It's when someone is nice to you and you're, you're thinking, well, why would you do that? If I give you a Christmas gift and you give me one back, I would say, thanks. But if I've been a total jerk to you and then you give me a gift, I would say, what? Well, why are you doing this? If it doesn't quite make sense in your head, you're pretty close to Grace. Grace is the kind of love that makes you say, no way, or what, or wait, 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 or why. It's this next level love that we learn defines the ministry of Jesus Christ. When you see grace up close, it will not just confuse you, it will also inspire you. 
In fact, if you would study some of our favorite stories and books and movies, you would find out that often what makes a hero into a superhero is an act of grace. So there's this this trope, if you know that word, this repeated theme in literature and movies called save the villain. Ever heard of it before? You know, the story starts and we meet the hero who we're for and then we meet the villain who we're against and we hate. But there comes a moment in the story where the villain is in desperate need and the hero, instead of giving the villain what he deserves, he saves the villain. And after that epic moment of the story, that hero who we loved before, we start to really, really love and respect. Who would, who would do that? Who would love someone that didn't love them back? Only the greatest heroes are full of grace. For example, anyone read any of the Harry Potter books? Seen any of the Harry Potter movies? Yeah. Some of you are like, this is a church. Can I say that I've read Harry Potter? I'm not sure if I can. <laughs> um, do you remember uh, the story, uh, Harry Potter is the hero and the villain in the story is his snotty, terrible classmate named Draco Malfoy. And for all these books, you know, Draco is just a jerk back to Harry. Until the end of the story, do you remember the scene? Uh, Harry and his friends and Draco and his friends are in the room of requirements One of Draco's goons accidentally starts a fire. The whole place is lit up. Everyone's about to die until Harry and his buddies find a broom to fly their way out of the room. That's when Harry notices that Draco's stuck. Stuck in the flames, he's about to die. So what does he do? He saves the villain. I think Ron says to him, if we die trying to save Draco Malfoy, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) It's a pretty good line. And after they zip out just in the nick of time, it, it makes you love Harry about 10 times more. Who, who would do that to someone who did something terrible first? Or if you can't relate to Harry Potter, any uh, Mario fans in the house? Yes. Any of you seen the Mario Brothers movie? Yes, many of you. Look at this. We've seen more Mario Brothers than, than Harry Potter. Uh, remember uh, DK, Donkey Kong? He's this chest-thumping, arrogant, always on Mario's case until... Mario and DK get blown up as they're zipping along the rainbow road. They plunge down into the water, but DK gets bonked on the head by a falling tire. He passes out and he's going to drown in the darkness of the water until, until Mario saves the villain. And not only do you love Mario more, but something starts to change in DK's heart when he receives grace. Any Broadway musical fans in the house today? Yeah, I was raised with lots of Broadway. Best musical, in my opinion, of all time is Les Miserables. Uh, Best moment of the best musical of all time is the moment where grace changes a man's heart. Uh, Jean Valjean is the hero of the story. He's a convict. He's on parole just out of prison after many years. And he's so sick of, of the system. He's so sick of being poor and grinding it out. And this one scene, the priest of a church opens the doors, lets him sleep inside, feeds him, Blesses him, but Jean Valjean is so mad, he sees all the silver, the precious silver in the church. He takes it. He steals from the priest. He runs into the night, gets caught by the cops. They drag him back. His hands are full of stolen silver, and they say to the priest, He stole from you. And the priest in that moment saves the villain. He defends Jean Valjean, gives him even more, a man who robbed him. And Valjean is so confused. This is not the way the world is supposed to work that it changes his heart and changes the whole direction of the story. When, when we see someone get love that they don't deserve, it, it gets to us. And that's why Jesus gets to us. 
I love what John wrote about the Jesus he saw up close for all those years. Back to verse 14. He said that Jesus came from the Father full of grace. It wasn't just that one time when Jesus forgave people. It wasn't just that one gift that he gave. No, Jesus was full of grace. He was brimming with undeserved, shocking, illogical love for the people that he met. I can't prove it with the words of the Bible. Um, But I think the most common word shared among the followers of Jesus was, what? I speak to James and John. You know, the brothers just like side-eyeing each other. Like, are you seeing a tax collector? What? Jesus, do you know what tax collectors have been doing to our people? Jesus said, yep, yep, yep. But I'm full of grace. We caught a woman in the act of adultery. Do you know what adultery does to families? Jesus says, yeah. Yeah, that's why I came up with the rule. Why would you, why would you stand up for her? Why would you save her? Because I'm full of grace. Jesus, people have questions of why you eat with these people. What should we tell them? Grace? The disciples were confused, shocked, amazed. It was so hard to process because that's just not the way the world works. What made Jesus so stunning was not his absolute commitment to truth, to right or wrong, to holiness and repentance. What blew people's mind, what what their minds could not grasp was this simple fact that he was so, so full of grace. And maybe the best biblical example is this guy. Um, This is a depiction of what some people think the Apostle Paul looked like. So some of the, the early Christian writers, the church fathers in the first few centuries, passed on physical descriptions of Paul. They're not super flattering. They say he was kind of a, a crooked, short man with a large nose and a giant forehead. So this is what we think Paul looked like. Uh, and Paul, if you'd read his writings in the Bible, was infatuated with grace. Uh, you might know the story. Uh, before Paul became a follower of Jesus, he was trying to murder the followers of Jesus. If Paul had an Instagram page, it would have been a knife next to a cross, next to a heart, and a bunch of clappy hands. He, he killed Christians as a job and as his favorite hobby until one day, Jesus showed up. Paul was marching his way off to Damascus hoping to catch Christians in the act of worshiping Jesus when Jesus shows up in the sky. Paul's confronted by the voice of God and he finds out Jesus happens to be God, which means that Paul is in a whole lot of trouble. But just when we expect mighty Jesus to put his sandal on Paul's persecuting throat, instead he loves the villain, saves the man who was killing God's children. For days, Paul can't even process it. He just sits by himself and thinks and prays until a man comes, puts his hand on him and calls him brother, Because Paul wasn't out of the family just yet. And after that happened to the Apostle Paul, his life and the words that he would write would never be the same. Here's a fun fact for you longtime Bible readers. Um, The New Testament is about this long. Paul in these pages writes, I think I got this right, 23% of the total words in this part of the Bible. But if you would read every single passage here that uses the word grace, Guess how many times it comes from Paul's pen? 70% of the time. 
This guy who wrote a minority of the words of the New Testament, 70% of the time was the guy who would bring up grace. It's like you couldn't get over it. It was stunning, shocking, beautiful, life-changing that God would love the villain, that God would love him despite being villainous, that God would keep loving him when he knew the truth but struggled to live up to it. That was so incredible to Paul. He could not stop gushing that we are saved by grace and through faith as a gift that comes from above. So, let's talk about you for a second. Do you believe in grace? Do you believe that God loves you not because you've earned it, And not because you've deserved it, but just because God gives it. Now, if you're new to church, this might be all new to you. And you'd say, oh, this is interesting. I've never thought about it. But here's the crazy thing. Even if you're not new to church, grace is a fairly easy thing to believe when you're good and a super hard thing to believe when you're not. To actually believe that God's acceptance of you, the fact that he is disposed kindly towards you, that he wants to bless you, save you, bring you to heaven, that simple concept is so hard to believe when you've blown it. It's so hard to just get up and believe that you're good with God the morning after you mess up. It's so hard actually to believe that Jesus forgives sins applies to you, applies to that, applies to today. Now, we struggle with grace. And I think we do because it's just not the way the world works. I think um, if your parents gave you allowance back in the day, you only got the good thing if you did the good thing first. Clean up after the dog, make your bed, and I'll give you five bucks. And then you go to school, and what happens with grades? Well, you got to come to class and you got to participate and you got to do well in the test and I'll give you the good grade. Then you try out for sports and if you show up for practice and if you work hard and if you're a good teammate and if you perform on the court, well, then you get the starting position. Then you get your first job. Well, you got to show up and do the work. You got to make the company money. And if you do, we'll give you the promotion. We'll increase the paycheck. Like in everything in life, do good, good things will happen to you. Do bad, good things will stop happening for you. And that's why I think when people start to you know, process what is God like, they take that same concept, you got to earn it, you got to deserve it, you got to work for it, and they impose it on God. It just makes logical sense. So if you've heard of karma before, where does that come from? Well, this idea that that's how the world works. You better be good or it's going to go bad for you. When people talk about Santa, how do they describe him? He's making a list. Mm-hmm. Oh, Santa doesn't forget about his list. No, he checks it twice. He's going to find out if you're naughty. So be good for goodness sake. Uh, think of purgatory, if, if you've heard of that before. Where, where does that come from? Well, if you're really bad, we can't let you get right into heaven. I mean, you have to suffer for it for a little bit. You've got to sweat it out for a bit, right? Uh, think of reincarnation. Who comes back as the good people? The good people. Who comes back? Back is like a toilet brush at a Taco Bell with people who aren't good at their job. Well, the, the, the bad people. So be good for goodness sake. Like all of life, <laughs> that might be effective for behavior modification, would it not? I mean, we just assume if that's the way it works like here on earth, 
that must be how it works with the God of heaven. Uh, there's maybe no more vivid example of this than what ancient Egyptians believed. Let me show you a picture. Um, this is a, a piece of art discovered by archaeologists called the weighing of the heart. Egyptians believed that when you died, the gods and goddesses would gather around, they'd pull out a giant scale, and your heart would be put on one side, and a feather would be put on the other. The feather represented truth and justice and goodness. And if your heart was as light as a feather, the, the gods would accept you and the afterlife would go good for you. But if, if your heart was weighed down by sin, by mistakes, that's where that little lady came in. Uh, the one with the crocodile face is a demon goddess named Amit. And her job was to devour hearts that were weighed down by sin. This was their church art. So be good for goodness sake. Hmm. And we don't believe in crocodile-faced demon goddesses anymore, but, but that old idea sticks around, doesn't it? If you live a good life, well, you expect to have a good life. If you mess up, you, you expect God to be mad to get back at you somehow in this life or the life to come. So let me just say as clearly as I can, that is not how Jesus is. Jesus is not just full of justice. There, there's no passage that says, here's how it's going to work in, in the end. No. Instead, we learned these words, that Jesus came from the Father full of grace. He loved people, not because they were good. He loved them because they needed someone to love them because they were not good. The whole story of Christmas is God coming down from heaven to walk among us, not to settle the score or to send down lightning bolts on the bad, but instead to give his life so that we could be good with God. Jesus showed shocking, surprising, amazing, unfailing, and unconditional love to real sinners who really needed his forgiveness. He was known as the friend of drunks and gluttons, prostitutes and sinners because he was so full of grace. It just overflowed out of his heart towards people that make you say, what? And Jesus hasn't changed. And yes, let me repeat, truth still matters. Repentance still matters. You can't just do whatever you want and say, hey, free ticket to heaven. But I can tell you this, Jesus will love you when you least expect it. The operating system of Christianity is grace. And every single Sunday, we preach and proclaim it because Jesus was full of it. In fact, just two verses later, in John chapter 1, John said this, Out of his fullness, Jesus' fullness of grace, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Can you imagine being at family Christmas and you open a gift and like, oh, I'd this is great. And then you open another gift and it's the same thing. That's what Jesus does. It's like yesterday, you open the gift and he forgives you. And then today, you're like, well, what is this? And you open up, oh, more grace. I thought you were the God of second chances. She's like, no. no, You'd be in trouble with a second chance. Instead, how about I just overflow with grace so that every single day and every single hour 
And every single moment when you know how badly you need it, I, I just give it. If Jesus ran a restaurant, he'd sit you at a table. He'd bring out a complimentary basket of sliced, seasoned grace. He'd clear your plate, bring out a fresh grace salad. He'd serve you the entree, grilled grace with a vintage bottle of Sauvignon grace. <laughs> Complimentary slice of triple chocolate grace. And then he'd graciously pick up the check. That's <laughs> what Jesus does. Just serving after serving, day after day. Now we come to him with sin after sin and he overflows with amazing grace. So friends, if that time comes when you really mess up, when there are consequences that you're living with, when you know that you need help, when it feels like everything is falling apart, when you realize that you're not deserving and you're not worthy, this is the place that you come because this is where you find repeatedly, guaranteed, this message of a God who is so full of grace. You don't have to fix it first and you don't have to fake it. You don't need to wipe away the tears and act like it's all put together. That is not what the church of Jesus was ever meant to be. Smarter Christians have said it better than I. The, the Christian church is not a country club for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. If you pull up to a hospital and you're sick, if your arm is broken, you don't sit in the car and wait till it's better. You go inside because that's what the place is for. And so this is what the church is for. Um, if you ever got the impression that the Christian church is about impressing other people while you wear khakis. <laughs> it's, not, it's not Christianity. If, if you ever think you have to fix it before you, you show up, that is not Christianity. This is the place where you limp and crawl and get carried in so that your soul can receive the one thing it most needs, a simple message of unconditional love from the God who gives you what you don't deserve. So if you've got a court date coming up, Come to church. If your wife said, she's not sure if she even loves you anymore, come to church. If you haven't gotten drunk in years until Thursday, come to church on Sunday. And I pray that the songs we sing and the message you hear will just give your soul the one thing it needs. The rock-solid foundation of a God whose love is not conditional on your behavior. And when that moment happens, friends, those of us who attend church, who hear such confessions, we must respond with grace. Yep, people are going to need help. Yes, there are consequences to actions. You often do reap what you sow. No, no, it's not okay just to do whatever you want. That's not Christianity. Jesus was full of truth too. But what people need most in the moment is love. When they walk into a church and they're afraid fire will burn the place down, that every other Christian will scowl at these sinners who somehow snuck into our service. No, no, no. And please, please communicate with your words and with your expression what Jesus was full of, the unconditional love that we call grace. I need that. I bet you do too. Years ago, um, there was this Lutheran pastor named Chad who self-destructed his own life. 
he was somewhat of a pastor prodigy. Incredibly intelligent, incredibly personal. Actually, in some of the books he wrote, he told the story. When he graduated from his seminary, one of his seminary professors wrote on his paper, I can't wait until you and I are colleagues. My seminary professors did not write that on any of my papers. <laughs> but Chad, they did. He was a, a brilliant mind, and that's exactly what happened. He became one of the youngest seminary professors ever at the seminary. And he wasn't just a brain on a stick. He had a way with words that made publishing houses drool to sign contracts for his books. He was a, a sought-after speaker. He was witty, funny, biblical, deep, and committed to the teaching of sin and grace until... Things weren't great at home. Temptation came. There's another woman in the secret the consequences of his actions when it came to life. He resigned as a seminary professor, lost his job, the books and the publishing house canceled the contract, the speaking engagements dried up like that. His wife filed for divorce and he saw his own kids only every other weekend. He put his pastoral planner away. The Hebrew books stayed on the dusty bookshelves as he drove trucks 70 hours a week with oil under his fingernails. And he was mad. He was mad at himself that he had given in, mad at himself that he had thrown so much away, mad at his ex, mad at the world, mad at God who let all of it happen. He was just boiling over, avoiding churches, struggling with God until one night, six years after the divorce was finalized, one of his daughters, who was eight, was now 14. He was tucking her in to bed and, and something was on her mind. What's wrong, sweetie? He asked. And for minutes, she couldn't speak. Just wept. And so the question she had been wondering about for six years came bubbling out of her heart and out of her mouth. She looked her own father in the eye and said, Why did you cheat on mommy? And he was so tempted to run. To run from the awkwardness, to, to run from the truth, to, to make excuses, to, to tell his daughter his side of the story. But instead, he just confessed. Confessed his sin, his shame. And when his baby girl acted a lot like Jesus, when she wrapped her arms around her own father, when they em embraced, when she spoke words of forgiveness to him, th this man Stop just believing in grace up here. It, it finally got here. When he was up close with the consequences of his own sin, and yet there was still undeserved love, there was something that shook him and changed him. And my prayer is that what happened on the edge of that girl's bed is what happens every Sunday here at this church. Where the truth hits us in the gut and we might be tempted to run, but instead we confess all of it. And the response is something we never saw coming. The arms of Jesus and his people. The fullness of his grace in, in place of grace already given. Friends, if we can do that, this will not just be a Sunday hobby. This will not just be a church. This will truly be a Christian church that imitates Christ, the Savior who is full of not just truth, 
but truth and grace. That's what just might make next Sunday your best Sunday ever. Let's pray. Oh, God. Um, I I pray (laughs) uh, that no one can relate to this. But because I I know lots of us can, um, thank you for being different. Man, our culture tries to tell us that all religions are made equal, but that's not true. Uh, Everyone else pulls out the scales when instead you extend your arms and wrap forgiving embrace around sinful souls. Uh, God, it's hard to get used to. It's hard to believe that you would love us today as much as you did back in the days when we were better at behavior. But that's the truth and it's what makes your grace so amazing. I pray that the chains of shame that have been wrapped around so many minds and hearts in this place would be released in the name of Jesus. I pray that people would be set free from the old things they used to think that you were going to get them in this life or the next. I pray that we would be amazed by the simple thing that you love us, not because we are good, but because you are. Thank you for sending Jesus as the epitome of grace. Thank you for his words and his actions and most of all for his sacrifice that forgives us not just for some sins but for all the sins. And now God, I pray that we could be gracious people. Help us to be miniature versions of Jesus who overflow with grace just like we learned from our Savior. Um, There are some people in our lives, God, who need a really firm reminder of the truth. But how many just need to hear something they never would have figured out on their own, that your son Jesus is full of grace. Help us to be those kind of people. Help every small group, life group, community at our church be that kind of community and help every Sunday be a place that brims and overflows with your amazing grace. It's in your name that we pray all these things, God, knowing that your face is shining upon us. You're for us because of what Jesus did in our place. It's in your son's name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.